Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again to pilot this ship solo as I guide you across the galaxy to the uninhabited, or at least thought to be uninhabited, planet of Altair 4 as we dive into the movie review portion of Sci-Fi September. And first up, the 1956 seminal sci-fi classic, Forbidden Planet. Uh, this is this is going to be a fun episode here, and I think um, I, I will I will start off by saying right off the rip that we need to collectively more people need to go back and watch some of these nineteen uh, fifties and nineteen sixties sci fi movies because a lot of the as as I'm going to get into some detail here a lot of these movies really set the standard for what sci fi certainly was for the next couple of decades and really kind of still is. Um, was birthed here in the late 1950s into the 1960s. And you will see that this comes out in spades in Forbidden Planet. So let's get right into it. No reason to... Uh, well, actually, take that back real quickly here. I was going to kind of open up with a uh, like a, a brief sort of five to eight minute kind of opening about like early, early sci-fi films and early cinema. It just didn't feel like it fit uh, since, you know, a lot of the what I would have been talking about was more aligned with like the 1930s and 1940s. And by the 1950s and 60s, things changed drastically. And in part, it is because of this movie Forbidden Planet that things began to change drastically for sci-fi at this point in time. Uh, basically, I can sum up the, the, earlier, the earlier period of sci-fi um, in cinema by just saying that studios basically just didn't trust that audiences would get or like some of the early sci-fi uh, stories that were were popular in print. Um, you know, we, we had mentioned before some of the. Well, we we had actually I had done a movie, an H.G. Wells adaptation, um, a couple months ago, and there were other, you know, War of the Worlds and and other stories like that. Um, you know, the Mary Shelley Mary, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, they're just studios felt like there wasn't going to be an appetite for it, so they didn't want to invest in it. Um, you know, there was other shortcomings, technological shortcomings, and things that they felt like would um they wouldn't be able to overcome so it's not shocking that even though some of the most important movies um in the beginning of early cinema like a trip to the moon metropolis um uh, uh oh gosh uh, things to come i already forget the movie i just did a couple months ago um even though these movies are very very important um the they were few and far between in terms of getting financed most sci-fi movies at this point in time were very squarely cheap B movies. Um, so that's, that's the summary. Like, I, I don't really think I need to get too much farther into that because I'd rather, I would rather focus on this movie forbidden planet because it is sort of maybe the biggest jumping off point for, um, for sci-fi in film history. But let's, uh, so, okay, now we're getting into it. I promise. So I'll give you some details on forbidden planets. As I said, uh, made in 1956, but its widest release date was a couple years later in 1958. Um, and then obviously it gets released uh, all over the world in, in the years later. In fact, it was banned in, uh, I believe it was banned in Spain for uh, for almost like 10 years after, after its initial release, maybe longer. Um, because this is, a, and we'll get, to, we'll get to some of this and in, into this in a little bit. Um, this was the first appearance of a mini dress, um, Anne Francis wearing her, uh, legitimately pretty tiny, um, even by today's standards, a very tiny dress throughout the course of throughout most of this movie. Even when she conjures clothing that is far more um, 
far more concealing. Um, it's it's still it's still pretty hot. I'll, I'll put it that way. But Anne Francis is walking around not wearing a lot of clothing throughout most of this movie, and because of that, I, I'm pretty sure it was Spain. It was banned in for uh, until like the late 1960s. Um, <clears throat> so let's see here. Uh, we have our director of this movie is Fred Wilcox. Um, kind of um, not someone I'm terribly familiar with, other outside of the concept. Outside of the context of this film, um, you know, he dies. I mean, he dies like in 1964, and he's not that old when he dies. He was like 56 or 57. Um, but he, but Forbidden Planet, and um, he directed several Lassie movies uh, for uh, for TV and um, uh, for TV and for uh, film, obviously. But the but this movie, Forbidden Planet, and Lassie Come Home are actually um, in the National Film Preservation Board's uh, National Film Registry. So. He's directed some important stuff, but uh, someone I'm not familiar with since he died quite literally almost 20 years before I was born. Uh, the screen, the screenplay was written by Cyril Hume off of an original story idea by Alan Adler and Irving Block. And it stars Walter Pidgeon, um, Canadian-American actor. Uh, he is Dr. Edward Morbius. Um, you, Walter Pidgeon is in a lot of stuff um, throughout the course of his career. If you... Just look up his IMDb. There's a very good chance you have seen something that he has been in, um, or you're just the names of some of the stuff he's been in are very familiar. But he had a very very long career in uh, in Hollywood. Uh, Anne Francis plays Altera, uh, aka Alta, is her nickname in this movie. So Altera Morbius, the daughter of Doctor Edward Morbius. Uh, Leslie Nielsen, also Canadian, uh, plays Commander John J. Adams, and I'm fairly certain this is his first. Um, this is his first uh, movie of, of any variety. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure he did other like stuff in Canada, but this is his first movie um, in the United States or anywhere else. And Leslie Nielsen, excuse me, plays Commander John J. Adams, and Warren Stevens plays Lieutenant Lieutenant Doc Ostro. Um, Warren Stevens, again, another person, another actor with a very long, um, a long career and stuff that you probably have heard of. Um, even if you're not, even if you're not super into, um, super into older stuff, you, you look at his IMDb credits, he has been in something you've heard of, um, absolutely for sure. Um, there's more, there's more characters with more lines here, but those are the, uh, this, this is our core cast right here. And then, uh, oddly enough, uh, Robbie the Robot also gets a, an opening credit in the beginning of this movie. Um, and, uh, Robbie the Robot is a very... A very interesting character in this movie, um, and I, I do say a character because it is legitimately, um, you know, first off, it's like a guy in a costume, right? But legitimately, uh, Robbie the robot gets um, gets its gets its own sort of interesting lines, and clearly has some some kind of a sentience, and this is very important, and we'll get to that here in a second. So just real quickly again, just the main details here. Directed by Fred Wilcox, written by Cyril Hume. Uh, based on a story by Alan Adler and Irving Block, with Walter Pidgeon as Dr. Edward Morbius, Anne Francis as Alta Morbius, Leslie Nielsen as Commander John J. Adams, Warren Stevens as Lieutenant Doc Ostro. So this movie, as I said, this is actually a legitimate key movie in film history. There's a reason why this movie was selected to uh, you know, the National Film Registry. Um, this is one of our first this is one of our first true big budget sci-fi films. Right, like sci-fi films at this point in time, few and far between, really did they get a, a big budget, and even then they weren't they weren't getting 
even when you consider like at the time, I mean, this this movie has a budget of like one point nine million dollars um, at the time, which would have been huge. Um, that was much more of a production that you would have saved for some kind of period drama at that point in time. Even some of the the bigger movies, um, some of the ones that I mentioned previously, like Metropolis or Things to Come, um, even though those had more significant budgets than similar sci-fi movies at the time, they were still comparatively small to the budget that Forbidden Planet got. And because it's a big budget, you know, blockbuster type movie, um, first one of one of the first ones of its kind, it is taken much more seriously. Again, like these B movies, even if they were kind of trying to be serious, a B movie from the nineteen, a sci-fi B movie from the nineteen fifties was, um, you, you people were going there for kind, people were going to see it for the kind of bizarre spectacle of like what they could possibly do with some of the limitations on technology at the time, um, and you know nothing was really, there wasn't you know there wasn't like a lot of deeper thought going into these movies either. Um, you know, it, it's aliens are invading and we got to stop them. Or, uh, you know, there's a there's a menacing blob on the loose and we got to we got to figure out how to kill it. This movie is really tackling much bigger themes. We're tackling the themes of like hubris and, you know, how much power someone can accumulate. And, and should someone, should one individual or any individuals accumulate a lot of power? Um, we're talking about colonialism. You know, there's there is a it, it it doesn't this is probably the one they don't delve into as deeply as they could but we are like right off the bat you know told by the people that live there telling the telling our space explorers to get the get out like you don't you don't belong here this isn't your planet don't be here and then most importantly human relationship with tech is really the thing that we are diving into uh, for this particular movie that is that definitely underpins a lot of it between Robbie the robot um, between how, um, you know, just the fact that we were able to, we've advanced far enough and uh, by this point in time to even travel across the galaxy, right? And then, um, you know, we, we get into this uh, advanced civilization that lived on the planet at one point in time and the technology that they left behind and, and its consequences. Like these, these kind of themes were just not regularly a part of sci-fi in any meaningful way um, with, again, with like notable exceptions like metropolis like um things to come it but you know those movies dot the landscape every so often and it's here in forbidden planet when they tackle it that you begin to see more movies like forbidden planet crop up in the years to come this movie is also cited by numerous luminaries of the sci-fi genre as being an inspiration for something uh in particular you can once you watch this movie if you if you have seen anything star trek you can immediately begin to find the uh where Gene Roddenberry drew inspiration from, right? The shape of the ship and the bridge are reminiscent of Star Trek. You know, it's a flying saucer, but all you have to do is add the two long nacelles to the outside of the ship, and boom, looks a lot like the USS Enterprise or, you know, USS Voyager or one of the other ships. Um, <clears throat> how about the uh, how about the name of the ship? Did anyone, and the organization, for that matter? If, if you've seen this movie, um, I'm not really sure if you recall this but the name of the ship is the and thus the name of the space organization that um is sending humans out humans out throughout the, the excuse me throughout the galaxy the ship is the united planets c57d um last time i checked the <laughs> the federation of star trek was the united federation of planets and uh you know the the enterprise is the nc ncc 1701 
um, that sort of number, that, na- that letter and number designation carries throughout Star Trek. In fact, it is kind of one of those well-established sort of thoughts, rumors maybe, backed up with a little bit of, um, with a little bit, enough with enough uh, personal anecdotes to kind of be generally accepted as fact, that the that Roddenberry got the designation NC, NCC seventeen oh one for the Enterprise that at minute seven at minute seventeen and one second in this movie uh, is when you see the C five seven D orbiting Altair four. So it it is very likely that the calling of the Enterprise NCC seventeen oh one was a direct homage to that point in time in the film where you see the spaceship where you see the human spaceship orbiting the planet. Um, George Lucas, very influenced by this movie. Um, in fact, you can go ahead and thank Robbie the Robot for the creation of C-3PO and R2-D2. And not, not necessarily that they're, you know, although I guess you could say they both kind of have, um, a few, um, you know, a few direct sort of mannerisms and physical things that are reminiscent of Robbie the Robot, but... Robots really at this point in time didn't have personalities whenever they were in sci-fi movies. They were just tools. They were just robots. And um, this this particular robot, again, he Robbie the Robot gets an actual credit and billing uh, in the opening credits of the movie. Um, and this idea of having, having sentient robots with quirky personalities um, really is established here at this point in time. Um, so, you know, so C-3PO and R2-D2... Uh, are indebted to Robbie the Robot. This is also the first movie, uh, at least as far as I could find, this is the first movie with a completely electronic score uh, from B.B. and Lewis Barron. Uh, it's not really like a... It's I guess trailers and things had like a more traditional orchestral score, but all of the sounds and, and the, the score within the movie is all tonal, electronic, kind of experimental music almost. You could, you could argue that B.B. and Lewis Barron possibly uh created the the cyberpunk soundtrack here at this point in time in 1956 but um you know uh, maybe maybe not but i just kind of think that was that was a nice little tidbit there too that that fit in nicely with uh, with the end of our conversation from last episode all right and i'll give you a quick synopsis uh premise or premise for the uh for forbidden planet a little summary here uh so we're in the 23rd century a spacecraft again the united planets c57d is uh, has taken off from Earth uh, to go to Altair Four to investigate what happened to the previous expedition there twenty years earlier. They find Doctor Edward Morbius, his daughter Alta, and their robot Robbie living alone. Uh, Morbius uh, warns the crew to leave immediately, but they insist on staying to figure out what has happened to the prior expedition. Uh, Morbius again kind of pleads with them. When they refuse, he says, "Okay, you know this is uh, this is your funeral." And uh, indeed, it kind of feels like it's oddly, um, <clears throat> it's oddly kind of um, almost like paradise, uh, realistically speaking. The Morbius and uh, Morbius and his daughter Alta live in a pretty serene um, house that uh, is very, very much from the 1950s um, in terms of its architecture and design, uh, which is kind of just a funny thing to think about now, but. I'm sure people will be saying that about, um, you know, saying that about like modern Star Trek shows. Will be saying, talking about how like, oh, that's very, you know, early twentieth, early twenty first century, uh, you know, fifty, sixty years from now. But um, <clears throat> it's 
you know, Morbius talks about there being an invisible force um, that uh, killed all of the settlers from the initial expedition, including uh, his wife and Alta's mother. Um, as we get farther into this, we realize that it's not necess- It's not just some invisible force. This is a direct result of a hyper advanced technology from a uh, from a super race that died out long ago, uh, called the Krell. Uh, billions, you know, po- potentially billions of years ago, this race died out, and uh, their machinery and their technology has been left behind. And uh, you know, this this Krell machinery produces energy and uh, can boost, boost brain power. Um, and it does have the, the machinery does have the ability to harness, um, you know, improve, improve brain power so much that it can harness the, the power of the subconscious to just sort of materialize things. Um, so the Krell technology was so advanced that, um, it's, you know, we realize, uh, we realize that once we get to, once we unravel some of the mysteries of the Krell, we realize that their technology was so advanced that it's actually what killed them. Um, and what killed them were, as uh, Doc Ostro finds out, that uh, they were killed by monsters of the id. Um, and this is uh, part of your subconscious. This would have been, it's still pretty widely accepted. And uh, I believe it's like a, in psychoanalytical psychology. Um, th- but this would have been like Freudian theory, which would definitely have been very popular back in the 1950s. Um, and I'll, I'll get you that in a little bit here. But the um the krell technology tapped into the subconscious they could materialize things that they wanted to but instead they were materializing things from their id um which uh, which is what led to their downfall materializing creatures and fears uh from their id that destroyed them as a society um and these same sort of these same sort of um subconscious creatures uh that have been harnessed that have unintentionally been created manifested by dr morbius are now threatening the crew and as it turns out also killed the original people on the uh, from the first expedition um so just real quickly here the id uh this is part of the this is part of the uh you probably heard of this this was like intro level psychology maybe in high school or college but um the id the ego and the super ego um in psychoanalytical psychoanalytical psych- psychology um again by freud so the id represents the primal unconscious part of the mind that is driven by basic needs and desires. It operates according to the pleasure principle and demands immediate gratification. So you can see how if we were to manifest uh, creatures straight from our id, right, they would be kind of wild beasts. That, that's the idea here, that the unconscious mind is manifesting uh, through via the Krell technology. The unconscious mind is manifesting these creatures that are fearful and um you know want want uh want to protect themselves via violence instead of um you know what you kind of would think about as being the more civilized way you know through dialogue and discussion um these are not the 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 it is the most primal and basic part of our brain uh essentially and then if you want the further definition here i'll go and give it to you uh so the ego is the conscious rational part of the personality that mediates between the demands of the id and the realities of the external world. It operates by the reality principle and strives to satisfy the id's desires in a realistic and socially appropriate way. So the ego is kind of like the damper uh, of the id, right? Like if the id wants bloodlust and violence, the ego goes, okay, well, we can't, you know, we can't do it this way. So how about, uh, how about you play some Call of Duty instead of going out and hurting people? 
Um, you know, what's, you know, whatever. I probably not the best example, but it's just the first one that pops to mind. Um, the superego incorporates the values and moral and morals of society that are learned from the one, from one's parents, um, you know, other close family members and friends. Uh, the superego acts as the moral censor, rewarding us with pride and self-esteem when we behave po- properly and punning us with guilt when we go against society's rules. So while the ego is sort of the damper, the superego is a sort of, um, I guess it's, uh, I guess it's just sort of like a nagging voice or, or the, the voice that tells you to do, you know, the voice that tells you to work harder in your brain, right? That if you, if you do your job well, you're going to get rewarded for it. And even, even if you don't get rewarded externally for it, you know, you have like the internal satisfaction of doing a job well done. Similarly, if you do not do a good job, um, at, at your, at your chosen profession and you neglect things and you slack off, it's obviously could hurt you professionally, but you will in, in, you know, intrinsically know that you're the one who let yourself down in that case. So that's how the id, the ego, and the superego um, generally work. I, I don't think this is as popular as it was um, years prior, but certainly is still um, a pretty, um, I guess, a, an accepted sort of uh, model of psycho- psychoanalytics and psychology. Anyway, <clears throat> getting back to the movie here. So there's your there's your basic synopsis. We are, um, you know, we are we are exploring an advanced alien civilization that was destroyed by its own technology, and uh, you know we are you know humanity is kind of getting these warning signs about what advanced technology would mean, potentially could mean for us if it goes uh, unchecked and uncontrolled, um, and we're investigating that via the via the Morbius characters and um, the uh, you know Commander Adams and his crew. So <clears throat> since since we had just wrapped up an episode talking about the subgenres, I figured I should probably maybe try to fit this particular movie into some subgenres. And it, it does fit a little bit better into some other ones than others. And I think it's because it is kind of, again, this is a very important stepping stone in how you think of modern sci-fi and, and what modern sci-fi becomes. And because of that, I think that this this does fit pretty well into some into one category in particular and then has shades of other categories as well. So I would for, first and foremost, I feel like this is actually a space opera that, you know, we are, th- I mean, this, this move, this movie is sort of adapted from the Tempest uh, in terms of its, uh, it's, you know, in terms of its storytelling. So it's very Shakespearean to begin with, which gives it a, a good sort of head start into a good, a good lead into that genre and that subgenre of the space opera. But it also is very, um, you know, we're, it is very sort of adventurous and romantic, right? We have the we have the um, you know our lead our lead is you know finding uh, finding love across the across the galaxy. There are space monsters to battle. There's there's a lot here that kind of fits into um, you know fits into what Star Wars would become or what the, the later adaptations uh, on film and TV for Dune would become. That I, I really think that Forbidden Planet most squarely fits into the space opera subgenre. And then I think if you were to kind of go for the secondary ones here, hard sci-fi. Um, and insofar as the understanding of what, um, insofar as the understanding of what science fiction, you know, science concepts, space travel concept from the 1950s, right? Like clearly now some of this is incorrect, but there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff at play here in terms of the, you know, melding uh, human psychology and, um, advanced technology and space travel and all this kind of stuff really would be very hard. Sci- if if you were to write this movie today, this is very squarely a hard sci-fi movie. But I think it's um, 
I would consider it a secondary subgenre simply because of the understanding of <clears throat> the scientific understanding of some of the things that we're talking about in this movie just aren't weren't fully complete yet, right? So hard sci-fi or first secondary subgenre. I think social sci-fi as a maybe your tertiary subgenre. Um, there are some discussion, like I said, there's some discussion of, you know, colonialism. Um, there's some good, there's some very good discussion on human behavior, human psychology, and our relationship with technology. It's just not as deep as maybe the, as the space opera stuff. So I think social sci-fi would be, would be your tertiary subgenre. And then I think it has shades of a, a lesser known subgenre that we talked about as well called solar punk. Um, Star Trek kind of has has very strong notes of what would you would consider solar punk, and because this is very much a Star Trek precursor, I think this does have a little bit of uh, a little bit of flavoring from the uh, from the very very I guess the micro subgenre of solar punk as well. So that's how I would kind of stack this one up: space opera first, hard sci-fi second, social sci-fi third, and just with uh, some flavor, some notes of solar punk. So as we do for all review episodes around here, do have to talk about the stuff that, you know, I didn't like. And I really think that most of this stuff that I didn't like really just is because if it's it's a movie very much of its time. Like joking about like the decor in the in the, the Morbius house, um, you know, it being a very like recognizably 1950s, early 1960s style home is it's like just unmistakable. But there are definitely kind of storytelling and storytelling tropes and sort of character tropes as well that from this time period that just they just don't sit that well um and again they date it it's not like i'm never I'll, i'll never go as far as to say that they're problematic they are just very much very much signals that this movie was made during a certain time period so the first one here is that did you know that forbidden planet is apparently a double entendre for uh anne francis's vagina um, so there, Anne Francis is presented in this movie very much as a, e, a, a, a like an Eve-like figure of Adam and Eve, right? Like, in fact, the planet and where she lives is very idealistic and very, like, it's almost paradise. So she is very much Eve in this sort of faraway garden. And this kind of, st- this kind of stuff in sci-fi was definitely very strong then. And to some degree, it still continues, um, in bits and pieces today, but boy, does she lack quite a bit of agency for most of the for most of the time she's on screen. She is something that is to be looked at, and and believe me, late nineteen fifties Anne Francis looks fantastic. She's probably twenty five or twenty six in this movie, um, and like I said, she is prancing around in a midi dress most of the time. Um, she looks great. She looks absolutely great. But that's what it, that's what she's there for to look great. And she really is very much an object for the for the male gaze and also for the uh, for the crew members that, um, that that land on the planet. And I'll get to that point right here is that I found the relationship, you know, she finds, you know, she quote unquote falls in love with um, with Commander Adams and who would Leslie Nielsen also 1950s stud, absolute stud of a man. Um, he's when you really think about what Leslie Nielsen, you know, becomes in the late 1970s and eighties and on into the eighties, um, you know, the, the comedic actor, you know, from airplane, obviously, and, and the naked gun, it's, it's just so funny to see him as like, he's like 29 or 30 in this movie. And 
he's very much he's very much a leading man in every sense of that um but uh so it's just it's just kind of an odd way to see leslie nelson if you're unfamiliar with his other stuff that isn't very comedic isn't very comedic but that was really his role in hollywood um in canada and hollywood for a long time was this like this hunk I mean, he's a tall guy he's in good shape uh just kind of makes sense until you know he until he becomes frank drebin um and obviously uh dr oh gosh can't remember his name and uh in airplane, really before then, he's very much a, a, a leading a leading man in dramas and a, dramas in in action movies. It's kind of interesting, but anyway, Alta falls in love with Commander Adams, but like there's this there's this interaction that she has with she has some interactions with other crew members, and they basically just they basically just eye fuck her and and tell her like, hey, you can help me out with this baby anytime you want, and like again, I get it, um, but it just it just doesn't fit into even in movies nowadays that have the the sci-fi uh femme fatale the sci-fi um you know the hot lady of sci-fi like the the storytelling does not follow these beats at all because it's very odd i i i think it's a little bit in there's a even in exchange it's really threatening um and kind of rapey where commander adams tells alta that like you're lucky that you're with me because there's a ship full of there's a ship full of like the top human specimens of men from planet earth. And they, they, you know, they've been in space flight for over a year. Um, which basically is just like, listen, lady, you're lucky I'm here. There's a ship full of horny beefy dudes who haven't plowed in a year. And you are just prime fertile ground for them to plant their seed. That is oddly threatening and rapey. And I, I know it's again, like this, this trope of this kind of, this kind of sexual character in sci-fi is is still continues to this day but not in this way right like and i think there's even space to explore this kind of thing where you know one woman in this like otherwise kind of threatening island of men um you know alien the alien 3 kind of gets into this a little bit um you know ripley is the only woman on this male penal colony full of people who are violent rapists um, I think there's room to explore this kind of idea, but just not in this particular movie. Um, it just, it's very out of place. It's kind of, again, it, it just sort of, it's so male gazy that it lack, it, it really robs Anne Francis of, uh, it robs Alta of a lot of agency. She does discover some towards more towards the end of the film, <clears throat> more towards the end of the film when she makes her decision to, uh, to leave the planet, but she very much is an object prior to that. Um, and Robbie the Robot, while I, I generally like Robbie the Robot, it feels like a little bit too much of his presence is like a little too light, a little too comedic, right? Like it, it's again, there there are his appearance is part of it. And again, that there's that's just more physical limitations of what they were able to do with costuming and technology um, back in the 1950s. Oddly, obviously, someone had to be in the suit. Someone had to control the the various um, electronics and things in the suit that were moving around. Like it, it was a whole setup, um, and like I understand that, but it does he does look kind of funny. Like he just he looks very and he is and like the robot is kind of. I think this trope later in movies, you know, you have like the threatening robot or the, the robot who is so neutral that it even lets some things happen that maybe it shouldn't happen, but. Um, Robbie is actually friendly and on the side of good in this case. 
Um, but I, I do think he's like a little bit funny looking and even has some lines and interactions that just don't quite fit the movie. They feel like they're from a from something that's much more comedic. Um, like there's a whole scene where the the ship's chef, uh, I can't remember his name, um, has Robbie synthesize alcohol for him. Um, and, you know, the chef gets not, you know, gets fall down drunk. And like it's that's something that is straight out of like some kind of comedy. So like while I do generally like Robbie the Robot, um, it is a very odd it, it just I think the general his, its general presence was a little bit too comedic for me. And I think I would have had Robbie been more neutral and also wouldn't call it Robbie. It just makes it too personal, like makes it seem like it's too human like. Um, again, I understand like why they why they went for it, but um, and how important this Robbie the Robot character is. But I would have gone something more, you know, neutral in name and neutral in presence, um, to sort of kind to kind of get the the understanding of how like these robots, how a sentient robot really would work. Now it's not all bad, obviously. Um, so I'll get into the things that I did like, and the things I did like were, were really great. I think they hit them hit them really really um, right on the head. The things I did like. So I did like that at really at the center of this, once you get past, um, once you get past some of the special effects and stuff, and uh, once you can kind of get past Anne Francis's legs, the, I, I do like that this is really is an exploration of the human mind and human behavior, right? Like despite all of these major human advancements, um, you know, we, again, we, we put people in a spaceship and flew them across the galaxy. Um, you know, so it's, you're, we're starting off the movie with this idea that we have conquered, we have conquered Earth, we've conquered ourselves, we've conquered space. But once we get into something that is truly unknown to us, uh, it's not so much the planet, it's the Krell technology, right? Something that is truly foreign to us, this foreign thing brings out the worst in us. And I, I like that. I, I always like those kind of explorations of, uh, of, of, of humans with their technology or human, you know, as human knowledge advances, you know, however you want to look at it and human experience widens, you know, does it bring out the best in us? Does it bring out the worst in us? And, you know, the warning here obviously is that potentially too much unchecked, unchecked technological power can definitely bring out the worst in us. So I, I like how they, they do hit on that and they really, it's not a passing sort of thing. They really, um, they really do kind of make this the, I guess the thesis the thesis of this movie. And I, and I do think that it, it is, you know, when space travel like this does become possible and we are sort of able to, um, you know, we are able to encounter different planets, potentially different life forms. Um, but essentially just as, as we, as humanity encounters different scenarios that have never been experienced before, it will be a test to see if we have conquered ourselves and if our, if our ego and super ego have our id in check to be reasonable and logical in the face of potential dangers or just things that we have never encountered before. So I do think that they hit the nail on the head with this in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the human behavior aspect. Um, in terms of like a, a storytelling kind of that a thing that becomes a trope for sure. Um, and I, again, I don't know if this is, I, I cannot say for sure if this is sort of, if this is sort of maybe ground zero or, or patient one, patient zero for this kind of trope, but it becomes a trope later on. I like that the Krell were not present in this film at all. Um, this is something that really has persisted across sci-fi media. 
you know, the advanced ancient beings who are killed by their own creations. Again, I, I know this is I know this isn't sort of in books and things like that. This idea isn't brand new, and you can even you can even go back. I'm sure you can even go back to um, you know creation stories and ancient human stories um, that really kind of get into this in some way, shape, or form. But thinking more thinking it of the more recent, the more modern um, sci-fi stories, I, I, this again, I don't know if this is the first movie, but this has to be amongst the first movie where we're talking about some advanced alien civilization and we're not even going to show them at all. We're not even going to men- we're like there's not even going to be like a picture of one someplace or something. And this is I, I like it because it does let us it does let us get more of a uh, of the character and human human behavior study in the context of the film as opposed to if the Krell were present in some way shape or form physically or even in <clears throat> even in some metaphysical context beyond their equipment, I, I feel like it then edges more towards a straightforward adventure versus something that is getting into the psychological. And like I said, this is this is stuff that is still very present today. Uh, think about in in the video games, Halo. What is the what is the big thing that we are what is the Halo? The Halo is a piece of hyper ancient, super advanced, super intelligent technology. Uh, from a species that, from a race that uh, they call the Forerunner, um, in the Expanse, the the Builders left the not only the proto molecule but like these superstructures in in different galaxies and in, in different planets and different galaxies. So it is a very like this idea. Again, I don't know if it necessarily starts here, but this definitely had to be one of the first films to sort of introduce this idea of there being ancient beings that are so much more powerful than us that even millions and possibly billions of years ago, their technology was way beyond our own and, you know, it killed them and it it killed them and and left and they left the, the remnants of these things behind. Um, Just one of those little tropes that I really do like. And even though it's, I think you can look at this stuff as a little bit hokey. Now, I think the special effects and the animation were actually pretty damn great for this point in time there's there's a scene where we're setting up a perimeter uh, around the ship that is supposed to keep uh you know pre- previously they had an incursion into their um into the ship and you know inside the perimeter of their ship and something that, that they needed to um i can't remember exactly what it was it was something they needed to call out or i think it was something they needed to call out with um to 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 alert the united planets uh, organization um, was destroyed by an intruder so they set up like this i can't remember exactly what they call it but it was like an atomizing fence basically a, a super duper advanced electric fence you pass through it you get atomized and there's this really great scene where um, one of these subconscious monsters attacks the uh attacks the perimeter and it's like lit up in lit up in this like purple and then it becomes red as it gets pissed off and as more energy is drawn into the uh into the fence to try to keep it out you can kind of see the outline like this of this giant, um, essentially this giant like lion head or kind of like lion head like creature, um, you know, as they're firing their lasers at it, as they're um, it actually picks up and throws and kills uh, some of the members of the crew. I, I actually thought that scene was pretty great for the, especially for the time. Um, I think that uh, the the way Robbie is set up, the, especially the in the head, um, you know, he has like the these like visual lines to like show like his voice um, almost like a, uh, I can't remember what it's called, like an oscillator, oscilloscope or whatever that shows like sound wave lines. 
Um, I'm probably getting that wrong, but I think you know you kind of know what I mean. I put them, I put I put those like spectrum waves on samples <laughs> for when I'm when I'm posting episodes and I'm posting pieces of the episodes. You can see that kind of going across Robbie's front to, to denote that he's speaking, which is again I think it's a very cool thing. I think the design in Robbie's head of all the gears and stuff is very cool. There's just some like really good stuff in terms of early in terms of early special effects, early animation, early split screen stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's all just very, very good stuff. Um, certainly, certainly if this movie was made in modern day, this, this shit would be like, honestly, this shit would be pretty mind blowing if you were to kind of redo this movie in modern times, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but it's so not only the special effects, but also just the visual language of this particular movie really establishes, um, there should say this movie establishes a sci-fi visual language that a lot of movies and TV shows, probably most movies and TV shows, really follow pretty closely for the next several decades. I mean, like I said, like you can when you watch this, we watch the this movie and you see the interiors of the ship. Um, the first thing you think of is like, oh, this looks like a, a bridge from Star Trek. Um, when you think about like the you know the, the the idea of like this sort of impenetrable atomizing fencing. Right. Like that's something that is in every single sci fi movie. You want to protect a perimeter. It's this like essentially this hyper advanced uh, electric fence. There's just there's other examples of this, too. The, you know, the uniforms that the that the uh, the crewmen wear are very reminiscent of what, um, you know, of what our, our future sci fi militaries look like. Uh, the, the ray guns, um, how they shoot, what they look like, the. um even the planet that they're on, like just the sort of the, the giving it a very alien landscape, but obviously, but like still kind of like serene and nice looking, right? Like it, it's not like a threatening looking planet. It actually, Altair 4 actually looks really comfortable and really nice. And that's like something that really, um, that really hits when you think about Star Trek and some other, and some other um, um, adventure, sci-fi adventure stuff that takes place on other planets. They're usually not that hostile after this movie. I mean, some of them are still, obviously. But usually the planet is very nice-looking. So even if there is, like, an underlying hostility of the inhabitants uh, or, you know, some kind of, you know, force that we're unaware of, um, you get this, like, very serene-looking place um, that is clearly alien but also very nice-looking to kind of maybe lure you in and, and, and give you a false sense of security. Um, so, yeah, this movie really has a lot visually going on for it. That I definitely like. Uh, even if you're, like I said, even if you're not like really that big of a fan of movies from this time period, watch it and you'll see exactly what I mean in terms of like the, the visual language. Really, you, you can pick out stuff that like, oh, this is from, I've seen this in this movie. Or I can recall this from this movie, you know, that came out 20, 30, even 40 years later. Um, so that, there you go. That's That kind of wraps up the, the likes and dislikes. I'm sure there's... There's some more things here. I actually did like, um, I did like their some of their attempts at humor that were a little bit more lighthearted. I think, it, I think even in the most serious movies, you need just a character or two to kind of lighten certain scenes. Um, so I did like the attempts at it. it just wasn't they, to me. They just didn't quite hit that well. Um, uh, I, I did like the um, just overall. I, I everyone really hits their parts out of the park. Um, Morbius is, you know, even even though his name is kind of very sinister sounding, he's like this really great, uh, Walter Pigeon plays him as this really great conflicted scientist, right? Like, again, something that kind of becomes a trope. Like, he's 
you know, he's harnessed some kind of power that he can't quite control. And it's not um, almost like Jekyll and Hyde, I guess. You know, it, it, he doesn't realize that he's the one at fault for everything that's going on. Um, everyone, performances are great across the board. Obviously, this movie's like, I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I, this is something I will watch. I've seen it before. This is something that like I'm going to continue to watch, um, you know, in the years to come for sure. Despite me liking it, however, there are some things I would change. And I think I, I think um, most of the changes would obviously just be like, hey, wouldn't this be cool if we were to touch this up with a modern, you know, with modern special effects and more modern ideas and understanding about stuff. But there are some things I think you can change even even without really dipping into that particular well. Right. Even without like just completely modernizing it, there's some things that you could alter, I think. That would, for me, take this movie up from, let's say, let's say this movie is a, an 8 out of 10. I think you could bump this movie up to a legit 9 um, out of 10 if you changed a few things. So one of the things that I would change, the monsters of the id, the invisible monsters that are roaming the landscape, killing people, uh, that are manifestations of our basic, fearful, and violent instincts. I would have made these these monsters more plentiful and more violent, right? Like, I would have had... <clears throat> so in the movie dr morbius is the only one that can conjure these creatures he's the only one that's been um in direct interface with the uh with the krell technology however i would have had both morbius both morbiuses both uh alta and uh dr morbius would have been able to manifest the creatures possibly i would have even extended it to the crew members having the ability to conjure these invisible forces um, and I'll get to the you know the more details in that here in a second, but I think that if there are more of them, it kind of and if, if we catch on to the understanding of what's going on a little bit quicker, um, and we have more of them, I think that it, it does it increases the the sense of danger exponentially. That any one of us could be the ones who are signaling in these creatures to come destroy us. I also would have used more visual clues to signal their presence. Again, like I think the fence scene, the atomizing fence scene was pretty cool. Um, and I would have done more of that. You know, maybe there are some more visual tricks with, you know, maybe you just have more more of these manifestations trying to break through the fence. Um, or, you know, you have, um, you know, more, you know, a scene where there is some other kind of encounter with them, you know, that shows us visually that they're there. We, we get one more at the end as the manifestation tries to break through to get to Morbius and, uh, and Commander Adams. But I would have had a few more scenes where that's where that's happening, um, you know, kind of like thinking about like um, the original Alien, where we began um, tracking, we're able to track the uh, xenomorph through the uh, through the ships like air ducts. I would have had some kind of like something visual like that, where you know, um, you know maybe people, maybe Adams and some of the other select crew members, you know, uh, probably Doc Ostro. Adams and uh, there's like a number there's like a number two or excuse me there's number three I can't remember what he calls it Farman maybe um they all would have had like maybe some kind of like view screen that would show us that at various points in time the 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 creatures the manifestations are, are nearby you know whatever I also I would have made them a little bit more visible right like again I, I think that fence scene was really cool I would have done more stuff like that to sort of give them shape like you get we get one scene where we see these big, like, animal footsteps being created, you know, these invisible animal footsteps being created in, like, the dirt as um, their ship is sabotaged. 
like I would have done more stuff like that to make sure that we can see, you know, you don't see them completely, but you see hints of them, whether it's more footprints like that. Maybe there's, you know, maybe in the distance, there's like some dust being kicked up and we can see the out, the, the vague outline of it, whatever, just more visual clues that something is actually out there stalking them. In terms of character, I certainly would have given uh, Alta quite a bit more to do, right? Like, <clears throat> I, I just, like, this goes back to her not having a lot of agency. Um, give her some agency, maybe even make her a surprise antagonist, right? Like, or like, you know, she, at one point in time when the, the crew gets attacked, she has a dream. She dreams about the attack. And clearly her and her father are like they're you know, connected on some kind of mental level or whatever. Um, she didn't manifest the creature, the, 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 you know, she didn't manifest the, the creature or whatever he did, but maybe, you know, we have, we have this trope a lot in sci-fi movies where, um, and, and horror movies for that matter, where like, oh, it's, you know, there's actually two killers or in this case, there's actually two people causing, um, these manifestations. So maybe you could have made her a surprise antagonist that she was also manifesting, um, you know, she was also manifesting these creatures. Maybe she manifested the first creature, right? Like she didn't want them calling out because, you know, the the idea is that she's like enamored with C- Commander Adams. So maybe she didn't want them calling out because she wants them to stay. So you kind of have two of these creatures um, battling for two different sort of um, two different instincts. Um, or maybe she is a very purposeful um, uh, antagonist. So, you know, maybe while we reveal that like maybe maybe Edward Morbius did sabotage the ship. Um, maybe it was her her who unleashed the later bigger monster, or maybe we find out like some kind of deep seated shit that like if you know the the people that were killed when she was a child, maybe it was her that killed those people as a child because she felt threatened or she didn't want to leave or whatever it was, right? So maybe we could make her a purposeful antagonist that she's actually had this power all along. She just never said anything. So, you know, like I said, more agency. If we're gonna if we're gonna ogle um, Alta, then let's make her a little less innocent. Uh, give her a little more agency. Make her more of a femme fatale. She should she should be the equal to the commander uh, or anyone else in the you know any any other part of the crew. She should be the equal to them. I think the I, I think the the Krell technology, while well, it's it's good that the Krell aren't there, I think we needed to have like a little bit more um, in depth with what exactly the Krell technology was, what it could do. Um, certainly now, this would be the thing that thinking about like now, instead of just like a room with some, you know, some kind of lights and weird boops and bops and stuff, this this would be look awesome now. However, I think that we, we needed more of, we needed less of the kind of like, oh, this is what this machine does. And a little bit more of, you know, I don't know what this machine does. And when you guys showed up, it, it you know, like it's it lit up like a you know lit up like a Christmas tree, whatever. I think we just needed more with it. More more visual stuff to kind of give us warnings that something's going on with this stuff. I, I'm not exactly one hundred percent sure exactly what I what I would have done. I think the I think one thing for certain that I would have done is that as opposed to, so we only see um, Dr. Morbius, we see him interface with the Krell technology and he tells us that he had done it previously and it almost killed him. And then later on, Doc Ostro um, uh, tries to interface with it and it does sort of work. I mean, it kills him, but he's the one who kind of gives us the explanation that the 
the Krell technology is actually manifesting these nightmares um, out of our subconscious. But I would have what I would have done for certain is that instead of the only way to access this is by direct interfacing um, with like some little kind of uh, prongs with like uh, little balls at the end of them, um, I would have had the Krell technology sort of turn on as soon as the the ship landed, and then anyone who gets within, you know, be it the Morbius, you know, where the Morbius uh, household is, it, anyone inside of it or, in, you know, within a certain radius of it could be the ones triggering these manifestations of these creatures. Um, you know, I, I just, again, I think that if more people, if this has more influence other than being kind of confined to one person, then it does make the whole situation much more dangerous. And it could have, you know, <clears throat> and if everyone is sort of a suspect, you do get a, an even more heightened sort of um, human behavior study. Like, who's going to turn on who? Who suspects who? You could kind of play into that a little bit, too. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I just think that there was a little bit more you could have done with the Krell technology other than kind of... I mean, what they did was was good. You know, for this particular movie, it was probably good enough. Um, but I think I think you could you could ratchet this movie up a few notches if you do uh, if you do give a little bit more... Um, I wouldn't call it insight, but if you give, we get more screen time and we get more knowledge about the Krell technology and we, we see that it's doing a little bit more. Um, I guess, I guess basically what I'm saying is just put the Krell technology a little bit more at the center as opposed to, um, as opposed to Dr. Morbius himself. Um, I think that would kind of put things up a few notches. So overall though, that's that's the general review there. Overall, though, uh, this movie is fantastic. Um, it certainly has its certainly has its downsides, you know, in terms of like the the kind of um, the the extreme male gaze, uh, basically looking up Anne Francis's skirt. Um, that's a little bit it's a little bit strange, um, you know. Certainly a, a mark of its time. Uh, the special effects are a mark of their time. But when you when you watch this movie, if you are a big fan of sci-fi TV, sci-fi movies, like I am, watching this is like looking at a blueprint for everything that would come after. It, it's pretty fascinating, just like really how detailed, um, how excuse me, I should say how you can follow some of the, even the small details and trace them to an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation from like the late 1980s, or trace them to. Um, you know, trace them to something like Foundation, um, you know, the current series, the current Foundation series, um, you know, today. So, you know, something that's almost 70 years, coming almost 70 years after. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just a fascinating sort of, t a fascinating film relic, a fascinating piece of film history. Um, worthwhile entertainment regardless, does get slowed a few points, um, but worthwhile entertainment regardless, great performances from a lot of really good long long time actors and actresses um you know in you know in be they in genre and francis is really in a lot of sci-fi stuff um you know going forward um obviously leslie nielsen you know doing doing more of this leading man stuff until really until like the 1970s and 80s when he becomes he really falls completely into being the you know the funniest man on the planet and then you know the 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 quality character act the, the quality actors of you know walter pigeon and uh <clears throat> excuse me walter pigeon and i'm already forgetting his name warren stevens it, it's just like a really this is just a really well done movie and something that i i always encourage people to go back and watch an old movie once a year so you can kind of see like where 
movie making in general was just so different. Like if you've if you've ever seen a movie from the 1930s or 1940s, movie making in general was just so different. But like this, this one you go back and you watch, and it feels it feels so much more familiar because it is the first of its kind that would influence then a whole bunch of movies going forward. So I, I love it for that. Um, like I said, just all around, this is, for me, um, this is a solid B-plus movie. Um, a few things kind of keep it from being uh, from being an A-level movie. But, um, you know, f- for its time, for everything, for all its wrinkles and things, um, for what it is, this is definitely a solid B-plus, B-plus must-see kind of movie. All right. So that does it for this episode uh, for the Forbidden Planet review. We are going to tackle next... Um, a, a much more modern movie. I think it's from 2000. I got to look this up exactly. I think it's from 2019, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, but we are going to advance now 60 some years and talk about um, an Australian produced movie. I'm pretty sure it's Australian produced. Um, filmed in Australia, has Australian actors in it. So I'm going to assume it's Australian production. And it's called Triangle from 2019. I believe it's 2019. Uh, anyway. That's what we're going to be doing next, um, and really excited. That's actually one I have never seen before, um, and I was looking for something that maybe fit more into the more into the new weird category of you know of the in the tradition of like Annihilation, in the tradition of um, uh, you know Benson and Moorhead. So I was looking for something like that that I've never seen before, and at least the general synopsis of this movie seems to fit that bill. So uh, we will be talking. On Thursday uh, or Friday, depending on if I'm busy with work this week, we'll be talking the movie Triangle. So until next time, thanks for listening, thanks for downloading, and we will see you then.